There we go. If you got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2, I invite you to stay there. So we're going to look at this together. But uh, as I do, let me scan the crowd here. Yes, we do have a new couple here that I want to make sure we say hello to. Mr. and Mrs. Sharp are here for the first time. So welcome Joel and Sarah back from their honeymoon. Joel looks so excited to be made the center of attention, doesn't he? (laughs) Well, welcome back um, to church. It is good to be here. I uh, want to read something to you, and I want you to not only listen to it, but I want you to allow your emotions to respond to it, because I really want you to be honest about just how much our culture today conditions us, even in the most subtle ways. So here it is. This is fact, okay? In his book, The Founding Brothers... Historian Joseph J. Ellis writes, In 1780, Major John Andre was captured while attempting to serve as a British spy in league with someone that many of you probably heard, Benedict Arnold. They were to produce a major strategic debacle on the Hudson River at West Point. And by all accounts, Andre was a model British officer with impeccable manners. He had the misfortune to be caught doing his duty. But several members of Washington's staff, including Hamilton, pleaded that Andre's life be spared because of his exceptional character. Washington, George Washington, the general, dismissed the request as sentimental, pointing out that if Andre had succeeded in his mission, it might very well have turned the tide of the War of Independence. The staff then supported Andre's gallant gallant request that he be shot like an officer rather than hanged like a spy. Washington also rejected this request, explaining that Andre, regardless of his personal attractiveness, was no more and no less than a spy, and he was hanged the next day. James Hamilton, in his commentary, goes on to say this. In this example from history, we see that George Washington was a man who understood what was at stake in the conflict, had a clear view or clear vision of right and wrong, and acted in accord with what he knew to be right. You see, the rightness or wrongness of the hanging of Major John Andre had nothing to do with his appearance or his polite manner or any affection his character might generate. He deserved to be hanged, so Washington had him hanged. Now, inside of you right now, in your heart, in your emotions, in your mind, what happens when you hear an account like this from history? See, I would submit to you that when we read something like this, or we hear about it, it actually pushes up against what we don't realize we've been conditioned to think is a normal way of looking at this. Hollywood is busy at this. If you've noticed with the rise of DC Comics and Marvel and all this, even in things like wrestling and all these types of things, the rise now, it used to be good versus evil. Now there's the rise of what we call the anti-hero. And so now there's this rise of this man or woman who does wrong but sometimes maybe does some things right, and therefore we're conditioned to try and be sympathetic or to think of them as better than they are. And I would submit to you what has happened is we've lost our way as Christians in the Canadian church 
to actually know the balance of how to lovingly stand for truth and yet still stand for truth. The title of my sermon is Only the Gospel Will Help Keep Us from the Corrupting Nature of Compromise. If you remember, we've gone through these seven churches of Asia, and this is our fourth church. Jesus told the Ephesians, I know your self-righteousness. This was a church all about their stands and their doctrines and their theology, and they had no love. They didn't give a rip about anybody. If you weren't orthodox, they weren't into you. All right? And in fact, I submit that maybe of the seven churches, the greatest warning is to the church at Ephesus, which is, if you don't repent, then I'm leaving. God actually threatens that church with leaving. Next comes the church of Smyrna, one of the two churches that gets no rebuke, in which the God of the universe and Jesus Christ says, I know your suffering. I know what it is you're going through. Last week, we looked at that wonderful city called Pergamos and the church that was there in which God says to them, I know your surroundings and I know you are tempted to compromise. That was the big thing in those three churches in the middle, right? Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis. We have tempted to compromise. Thyatira is in the throes of compromise. When I preach from Sardis, it's a church that's dead in their compromise. But then he comes to Thyatira and he says this, I know your service. This is actually one of the most complimented churches of the seven. I don't know if you picked up on that when Stephen was reading, but I want you to realize, but God still says to them, don't allow, to, uh, allow traditions to trip you up, which I think is a very timely message to churches in Newfoundland. We are the province of traditions. And yet God would say to the church, don't let traditions trip you up. And he goes even further and says, don't allow the culture to lead you. Don't allow the culture to lead you. So as we look at the last of Revelation chapter 2, which by the way, Thyatira gets the longest letter of the first four churches that God writes to you, I want to ask you this. With all that emotion going on in your mind right now as you're trying to figure out why, why did that story about Washington hanging this guy, if he was a nice guy, if you still got to deal with him, I get it, but why can't you still be nice? Why is it wrong to, to like the bad guy every now and then? Well, let me ask you, why do good churches go bad? Why do you think good churches go bad? Why is it that so many of the churches around us have such a great history of orthodoxy, even revival and evangelism, but now in 2022 are only shells of their former greatness. That's a stark reality. If you don't realize what's happened since 2019 and tw into 2020, the beginning of COVID to now, I don't know if you've kept notice of your city, the city of St. John's, but last time Steve and I checked from 2020 to now, between 15 and 20 churches have closed their doors. Or been sold. That's just in this one city. And it crosses a bunch of denominational names. See, but I believe the answer, what makes a good church go bad, is actually found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, with the church of Thyatira. You see, this is truly a church where everyone in this room, and any of you tuning in online, can find yourself. This church had them all. It has on-fire Christians. It has new Christians. It has, dare I use this old 80s and 90s word, carnal Christians or backslidden Christians. It had 
deceptive Christians, and it had another type as well, which is professing Christians. But Jesus had a message for them all, and he has one for you and I today. Now, remember, last week I asked you about three different words. Remember, I asked you about compromise, hypocrisy, and selfishness. Well, today I've got three different new words for you. They're on the extreme of the positive end, but often that are words that we know, but we don't talk a lot about in church in 2022 because I think we're reacting to the misuse and the legalistic use of these words through the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, and they are this, holiness, purity, and consecration. Now, again, engage your minds and your heart. What comes to mind when you hear those words? When you hear, be ye holy, for I am holy. Do you get uncomfortable? Does it take you back to a time of past hurt where you watch the church or leadership in the church misuse these words? Can you recall friends or family, spouses or children that were abused under the word holy? What about purity? Purity. It's like it's the forgotten word. It's very popular when I was a teenager. Very popular back in those days. Young couples would have purity rings. And there was all kinds of things. Now these things are mocked in by the world and not talked about at all in church. And then consecration. It's a bit more of a theological word, a bit more of a churchy word, isn't it? But to be consecrated, to be set apart, to be underneath something, what comes to mind when you hear these things? Who do you see? What do you visualize? D.L. Moody, the old pastor from Chicago, once said this, a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. I want you to think about that as we study this particular passage. So what is the need here today? What is our need as a group of people, as Calvary Baptist Church, as Kilbride Community Church, and Downtown Community Church, and Northern Cross Community Church, and the other churches of this city and province and country? I believe the need for this church, Thyatira, and the need for us is that the leadership and the congregation are called by Jesus Christ to not only be loving and serving, something they're complimented for, but they are to be gripped by the Word of God, the Bible, in such a way that they actually know what the definition of right and wrong is according to God. Not sentiment, not feelings, not culture, not religious trends, that God's Word and only God's Word sets the agenda. What does our church need to see and understand from this passage? I believe we need... And we must be a people who not only understand God's word, but the call from God to do what God calls us to do. There was an old expression when I was one of the younger people's age that when I was in my Christian school and youth group, my principal used to say, God said, says it, I believe it, and that settles it. In fact, we're going to sing a song at the end of the service called, I Believe. But as I've grown older, I've realized something. If God says it, It already settles it, regardless if I believe it or not. I often thought that it was somehow conditioned on me believing it. No, if God says it, that settles it. 
You and I are all invited to believe it, and you and all, I can make any choice we want. But if God says this is right or that is wrong, then that's just true. And so we need to be a people, we are called to simply love God. And by the way, when we truly love God, we will love people, all people. We won't pick and choose by race or economics or age or influence or power or ability. We will love God, thus we will love all people. And what's more than that, you know you love God and you love people by the ipso facto that you are serving others. You are not living for yourself. And this is what I want us to see. So as we turn our attention to this chapter, I want to give you a little bit of history, though, about this city called Thyatira. Because remember, we began in Ephesus, the church of loveless orthodoxy. Then we moved on to Smyrna, the church encouraged to hold on to Christ. And then we went to Pergamos, the church on the verge. They were flirting with compromise. Now we go another 40 miles inland, southeast to Pergamos. And we arrive at Thyatira, where compromise has led to corruption. Of interest to me that the longest letter is written to the least significant city. Of all the cities, Thyatira is the least significant. Outside of this letter in Revelation chapter 2, we know almost nothing else about the city except one little thing that maybe you didn't know. The woman named Lydia from Acts chapter 16, the seller of purple, she was originally from Thyatira. Which I find fascinating because here you have Lydia, a strong Christian woman. And then in the letter to Thyatira, you have some woman named Jezebel. You couldn't get a more juxtaposition of opposing views. And so I find that fascinating. Thyatira was a blue-collar town. It would have been the Hamilton of Asia. If you remember back in the day when Hamilton was called Steel Town, like Pittsburgh is in the United States, it was made up of different guilds, which actually means unions. And there were guilds there for dyers and builders and clothers and bakers and tanners and interestingly, bronze smithing. To belong to a guild was to have an identity. It meant you had security. It meant you had an economic hope. These groups lived in blocks. They lived in neighborhoods. They supported each other, protected each other. They socialized to get together. And of interest, the city was less about emperor worship and more about economics, which is important. And yet, Apollo was the patron god of Thyatira, who was, get this now, the son of Zeus. I want you to hang on to that, okay? Apollo was their patron god who was the son of Zeus, And I want you to hang on to that. Now, let's look at our passage. I want you to see the description of authority that Jesus Christ gives, how he describes himself in verse 18. He says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write these, the words of, now watch this, the son of God. He says to a church who believes that Apollos is their God, who was the son of Zeus, Jesus reminds the church and says, I want you to remember, I am the son of God. All right, And then he says, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The biggest, most famous, powerful, influential guild or union in Thyatira was the bronze smithers. 
And so this is how Jesus describes himself. He says, I am the true son of God. I'm not a knockoff. I'm not a wannabe. I am. He's referencing Psalm 2. I will declare the decree the Lord said to me, thou art my son, God Jehovah says, this day have I begotten you. My friends, remember this for later, but what makes Christianity unique and what makes us know that this is right is based on the fact that Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ is the true son of the living God. Everybody else are cheap knockoffs. When I've traveled and gotten to go to Israel a number of times and gotten to go to some other big places and I've gone to some places in the Caribbean and some other places, but specifically when I was in Israel and I'd go to the, what was called the market and you'd go there and you'd go in and place people would tell you, I have a Rolex watch. And this guy would come up and he'd do the classic thing you've seen in movies. He'd open up his jacket and all the watches would be hanging in there. And he'd say, this is a $25,000 Rolex. But for you today, a hundred bucks American. And you wouldn't believe how many people would be like, yeah, but you know, it's a knockoff. And even though it says Rolex, and even though it's shiny and has some weight to it, it's not the real deal. And so Jesus, as he begins this letter to this church, says, listen, I know you live in a city where Apollo or Apollos is is the guy that you look at and you think he's the son of Zeus. I want you to know he's a cheap knockoff next to me. I'm the real deal. He is pure and holy and knows all things. This phrase is actually taken from back in chapter 1, remember, in verse 14. But it's actually borrowing as well from the visions of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. And this would have been significant because not only was uh, Apollo considered the son of Zeus, but he was also considered the sun god. The sun god whose fiery eyes heaped judgment upon his enemies. So it's no mistake, it's not by accident that Jesus tells this church, I am the son of God. I am the one with eyes that see. You know what he's doing? He's going, listen. The culture is screaming for you to be in awe or afraid of or think you need what they have to offer. When I'm telling you right here and right now, I am all you need and you don't have to be afraid of me and I will give you everything because I've offered myself for you. See, sin always promises and never delivers. Jesus promises and sacrifices himself. So he is the one claiming power over the gods of this city. Just like the preacher in Hebrews said, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Christ with whom we have to do. So in other words, the blazing eyes of Jesus point to his penetrating power to see through the seductive arguments of Jezebel. He's about to compliment and condemn. And he wants this church. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not telling you this based on hearsay or rumor. I'm telling you this because I know. And then this feet of fine brass speak of his splendor and his strength and his purity. So he can say, I know, I see, I am worthy and honest and I am right and I'm just. And then with that in mind, in verse 19, he gives them a commendation of health and growth. And what a list. What church wouldn't want to be complimented like this church? Look at it. Of, of The least of the cities with the longest letter is the one that receives the greatest list of commendable works. 
He says, I know your works, your love. This is the only church of the seven that gets complimented for their love. This church abounded in what Ephesus had left, not lost, left. This is the second of only two occurrences, by the way, of the Greek word agape in the entire book of Revelation. This church loved God and loved people unconditionally. They were good at loving. And not only that, they had great faith. Look at it in verse 19. I know your faith. It was a faithful perseverance in the midst of oppression or opposition. This church was faithful to Christ and even the gospel, even when the going was tough. So they didn't water it down and they didn't toughen it up. They simply presented what it was and they had faith in it. But thirdly, doesn't it make sense? If you have love and you have faith, it makes sense that you're going to have service. And this service is from the word where we get deacon. It's used here, it means an active life of care, concern, and help for others. It wasn't just that they were busy. They actually cared and were concerned and wanted to help each other. See, a lot of churches today have a bunch of programs, and they're busy. But they're some of the hardest places to ever feel like anybody notices you. Do you know how many people have gone to church? I went to a big church when I was 17, almost 18. I went to a church, believe it or not, called Grace Baptist Church in Owatonna, Minnesota. It was, one of the, it was the very first time I ever went to a mega church. It had 3,000 people in it. I sang in the choir. I sang in a quartet. Yeah, that was back in the day when it was cool to have quartets. All right? Half of you were like, what's a quartet? Like a quarter with a tet on the end of it? No, that was when four dudes sang. All right? So I sang and I helped out in Awana when Awana was still cool and hip and popular and all these things. And I attended that church for one full year. And for 52 Sundays, I got asked every week if this was my first week there. For 52 Sundays. Like I was literally in front of people. Like I gave them a testimony once. And the next Sunday, hey, is this your first Sunday at Grace Baptist? Uh, no, I'm the dude that talked about his life last week, right? And yet, you know what? It's happened here. Yeah, the guy who laughed knows what I'm talking about, all right? It's happened here, all right? We can do this. This church didn't just talk the talk. They walked the walk. They served. But not only that, look at verse 19 again. And they persevered. They endured. It continued to be active even when there was continued pressure to stop. Now, now stop and think about this. Consider what was said about the church. It had the love that Ephesus didn't have. It had the same service and faith and perseverance of Smyrna. It was holding firm to the G Jesus name like Pergamos. And then to top it all off, he says, and your latter works are better than your first works. Ephesus is told to go back to their first works. This church has said, like, you guys are doing it. You're moving forward. You're gaining ground. But in the midst of all of that, something else was brewing. Something was spreading. A disease had taken hold. Paul told the Corinthians, a little leaven spoils the whole loaf. And there was leaven at the church of Thyatira. And it was in danger of spoiling everything good in this church. And so look at verses 21 to 23, where Jesus says, I've got a condemnation of compromise and corruption. Christ said in verse 23, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts, the motives and the hearts. And that coincides, by the way, with the description of verse 18. 
and which was likely an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, where God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. In other words, the motives, the why of even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. See, Jesus and only Jesus can and does know everything about you and I and about this church, whether you believe it or not. Everything you and I have done over the last seven days, everything we didn't do, everything we've thought. In fact, I remember it was Charles Spurgeon that was challenging a group of pastors and said, don't be too upset when you are falsely accused or you receive criticism because you are actually far worse than they accuse you of. The truth of the matter is, if all of you knew everything that I have done, not done, thought, or considered in the last seven days, you would not want me up here speaking to you right now. And yet God knows it all. I can't hide from him. I can't pretend. He knows everything. He can tell us what we're thinking and why we do the things we do, what we're hiding from, and what we even lie to ourselves about. So he systematically singles out four groups in this church. Number one, he singles out the church leaders. Look at what he says. He says to them in verse 19 or 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. That is directly addressing the leadership. The leaders there were tolerating this. John Stott has written, if the devil cannot destroy the church by persecution or heresy, he will corrupt it with evil. And I think this is his modus operandi in 2022. And that's exactly what, what was do, going on here. Christ says, I have this against you, speaking directly to the leadership because they had allowed, they tolerated this person identified with Jezebel. Now, I do not believe for a second this is a literal Jezebel. This is not a woman named Jezebel. Jesus is making an illustration to shock the leadership in the church. He wants them to realize what's going on. Jezebel was the Phoenician daughter of Ethabal, the wife of Ahab. Ahab was considered to be the most wicked of all of Israel's kings. And here's why in 1 Kings 21. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Now watch this. Whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. She was the woman that controlled the strings. She was the one that manipulated the man. The Old Testament Jezebel, she practiced witchcraft, worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth, supported hundreds of false prophets, killed those who were true prophets. And in 1, Corinthians 20, or sorry, 1 Kings 21, she robbed and killed an innocent guy simply to obtain his property because her husband was being a sook one day and wouldn't get out of bed. What is she really? She is the caricature of this pragmatism, situation, ethics, and worldliness, which is the cutthroat business of the world today. Can I get a witness? Look no further than politics or media. It's pragmatics. It's situation ethics. It's dog-eat-dog. This false prophetess who claimed to be a prophet, made her way into the church of Thyatira, set up shop, and she deceived many for some time. And the leaders let it happen. They let it happen. She condoned sexual immorality, idol worship, and claimed it wouldn't hurt the church because it was purely for economic reasons. In other words, hey, listen, go to the parties, 
Do your bit. Look this part. Smile. Don't condemn. Don't call out anything. Don't look different because that way, live and let live. We'll do our church thing on, on Sunday, but Monday to Saturday, just blend in. Does this not sound familiar? And so Jesus says, I got a problem with you as leaders. Either through fear or disguised under the slogan of love, these leaders like Jezebel and her false doctrine was leading many into sin. Richard Mayhew says, unity at the expense of purity is false unity. It seems then that Jesus says these leaders should have excluded Jezebel instead of tolerating her. Remember I began with George Washington and Major Andre? And, and, and everybody was tempted. Yes, he's done wrong. Yes, he, he tried to betray us. Yet, had he been successful, probably would have cost us the war. But he's a nice guy. And Washington says, no, it doesn't matter. But notice something, because next we have Jezebel. God addresses her. He condemns this lady, and yet from the letter we find out that he actually afforded her a time to repent. And I don't want you to miss this, because we can be so negative. We can be so negative and down. And this Jezebel has, is infiltrating this church, and she's destroying this church, and the leaders are doing nothing about it. Nothing about it. And, and Jesus says, I have every right to condemn her, but I want you to know, I first said, come to me. Turn to me, repent. You don't need to live this life. According to verse 21, she was called to repentance, but she refused to repent. See, I think repentance has gotten a bad rap. Those who belong to Jesus repent of sin. The refusal to repent of sin identifies someone as unregenerate. What is Jesus really trying to show the church of Thyatira, the leaders in the congregation? This woman can talk the talk and walk the walk, but she's not who she says she is. I've said this before. One of my favorite expressions is just because I stand in a garage doesn't make me a car. Although I would say that our world is almost there where I can say it and they would back me up on it. But just because you come to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. The old southern hymn, right? A lot of people singing about heaven ain't going there. How do you respond when you are confronted with your sin? Do you get angry? Does it make you humble? Are you sorrowful? Are you more grateful that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin? Does it make you zealous to turn away from sin in the future? Or does it make you feel like you need to be more careful not to get caught in the future? How many parents have said to their kids, you're not really sorry. You're sorry you got caught. How often do we doubt public figures who get caught and then they do the big apology tour on camera and they cry and snot and bawl and everything like that. And, and yet, as soon as they do that, then they want instantly to be back at whatever level they were at and no one's allowed to say anything. Isn't that short-circuited repentance? See, if we get angry when people, especially God, calls us to repentance, or if you feel yourself scheming on how to avoid being caught in the future when you plan to commit those same sins again, you are not acting like one who has been born again by God. 
The call here to this church is realized. Someone can say, I'm a prophet and I know the deep things of God and I can give you an easy way out so you can cling to something called some form of godliness, but really you can live whatever way you want. Is that really a relationship? I, I, I love this because God has gifted me with the love of my life from a human perspective and my wife. But I have to tell you, can you imagine, there's not one of you out there that if I claimed to be married to Debbie, but then Monday to Saturday lived whatever way I wanted, went and saw prostitutes or treated, or I had all kinds of inappropriate relationships online. But I said to you, no, 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 because every Sunday I'm committed to Debbie. Not one of you would be like, well, that's a good marriage. But how many of us treat God that way? Hey, God, I reported for duty. I'll see you in seven days. And we treat Jesus as nothing more than fire assurance or like he's a heaven real estate agent. Now, stick with me because this is not as legalistic as it sounds. But notice he also condemns those flirtatious members. At the beginning of the message, I asked you what happens to churches who start so well and go bad. Well, believe it or not, when Constantine legalized Christianity, things were amazing. The gospel spread like wildfire all across the then known world. But compromise set in, and by the year 1000, so it only took seven centuries for Hugo, a monk from Cluny, to write this. He said, the Eastern church has fallen from the faith and is attacked by infidels from without. In the west, south, or north, scarcely any bishops who have obtained their office regularly or whose life and conduct correspond to their calling and who are actuated by the love of Christ instead of worldly ambition. Nowhere princes who prefer God's honor to their own and justice to gain. And the Romans among whom I live are worse than heathens. And when I look to myself, he writes... I feel oppressed by such a burden of sin that no other hope of salvation has left me but in the mercy of Christ alone. See, Jesus is warning this church, when you tolerate compromise, the ones who believe it end up worse off than the one who propagated it. There's a reason we say the servants are worse than the master. And this is the problem. To be honest with you, I, I want people to avoid prosperity gospel preachers and people that are all about your emotions and if it feels good, do it. And it's not because I even think they are such a warning because when you buy into it, oh, they are far worse. They are far worse. And then, of course, there's the condemned disciples. He looks at our passage and says, I will kill her children with death. Now, why does he say that? Because they're the most dangerous and usually the most lost. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said to the disciples, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Christ also said that, he, that there would be many who would cry, Lord, Lord, and yet he would say, I don't know who you are. Can you imagine a church who loved and served and persevered like this one, having this kind of sin right in the middle of it. And can I ask, could it be here? Right here? Don't think about another church. Don't think about another person. Think about you and this church. 
But one of the things I love is Jesus lends every letter on a positive. Look at it in verses 24 to 29. He basically says to this church, I'm not going to lay any other burden on you except this. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Hold fast till I come. Keep it about me, the true son of God. We need to look to him for guidance and example. Philippians 2 Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. It was one of humility and love and service and holiness committed to the will of God. John 17, when he says, Father, my will, my desire is for them to have life and joy and have it more abundantly. Charles Spurgeon was saved on January the 6th of 1850. Not even a month later, on February the 1st, he wrote the following prayer. O great and unsearchable God, who knows my heart and tries all my ways with a humble dependence on the support of your Holy Spirit. I give myself up to you and your own reasonable sacrifice. I return to you and you alone. I would be forever unreservedly, perpetually yours. While I am on the earth, I want to serve you and enjoy you and praise you forever. Amen. Can I ask you, have you ever even come close to writing anything like that? or praying it, or feeling it. Jesus promised them a victory and a service with the true God. He says, who that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give power over the nations. They live in a city built on a power structure, built on unions, built on being in charge, built on a culture that said, this is what means you make it. And Jesus says, listen, relax, come to me, bring me your, your weaknesses, your hurts, your frailties, your fears, your doubts, your questions. Trust me, walk with me. And I promise you this one day you will rule and reign with me with no regrets No looking over your shoulder. No embarrassment. Have you not experienced that? Do you know how many people? Why is it that filthy rich people still kill themselves? And aren't happy. And are never satisfied. Have you been watching Netflix and Prime and all these things have given way now to documentaries? You've got wrestling documentaries and sports documentaries and politics documentaries and actor documentaries. And you know what is consistent in almost every one of them? I finally got to the top of the mountain and there was nothing there. Or I'm filled with regret. Or there's a lot of carnage, a lot of people I had to hurt to get here. There's a lot of places I would never show my face. Jesus' promise to this church of Thyatira is, follow me, trust me, and when you get to the top of the mountain with me, there are no regrets. There's no list of apologies. There's no scars. There's no I wish I could have or I should have and I didn't. It's nothing but the unmitigated victory and service. And then he says, I'll have, you'll have a relationship with me. Is there any greater promise than the gift of Jesus himself? At the end of this letter, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And here he promises, if you will just keep your eyes on me, you also will be with me, the bright and morning star. So that gives us the fuel to be willing to confront sin, repent of it, and shun it. We never want to risk our fellowship and relationship with God because it's too beautiful. 
And I agree with John Stott who said, rejecting Jezebel, they will receive Christ. They were permitted to share not only in his authority, but also his glory. That not only rule the nations, but also serve the Lord of the nations. And some things I don't want you to miss in this letter. Notice Jesus called this church a loving, faithful, serving, preserving, or persevering church, which was growing. And then he focused on the sin of the heart and the sin of the mind. He did not focus on preferences, standards, or create a sense of legalism. He says, I lay on you no other burden. So let me ask us all as Christians this morning, what would God say to us? Are we all of these good qualities? What sin is here amongst us? What things do we fight over? Are we fighting over sin in this church or over preferences? What divides us more? The pursuit of holiness or wanting our way? What divides us? The relationship and purity and consecration of God or petty differences? Are we defending the truth of the gospel? Are we witnessing the good news of Jesus Christ? I, I love this. One guy wrote, wrote here, whoever is pretending to be a friend but secretly working against your progress in life shall be and should be exposed. And then he writes, Sometimes those who are most antagonistic about the church's great commission vision are those who cannot rejoice when a sinner comes to Christ. A good litmus test for spirituality is this. Do we find more enjoyment in religious activity or lost people coming to Christ? Boom. So, holiness, purity, consecration. How are they in your life? It's not enough to hear only and then do nothing about it. It's not enough to hear and to do anything you want, like Jezebel. Even if the pastors in the church tolerate sin, Christ will never do so. And he died in order to receive a pure bride. The only thing that pleases Christ is the pursuit of obedience in him. So let me ask you, practically, in a world of Netflix and Disney Plus and Prime and Instant Access and TikTok and all the things. Are we being desensitized by the present evil world? Do the things that once shocked us now pass us by with little notice? Where do our minds wander when we don't have anything to do? What are we reading and watching? Hmm. What are we paying for? How many hours did we spend this week watching TV? Let me ask you this. How many acts of adultery did we watch this last week? How many murders? How many did we watch with our children? Now it gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? And lastly, how many chapters of the Bible did we read? Now you might say, Pastor Steve, listen, you keep promising that this won't be legalistic, but it sounds a little bit legalistic. I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. One, if I throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one who yelps is the one who got hit. So if you're getting hit, why? Number two, I'm not suggesting that we legislate a set of rules and regulations. I'm simply asking you, how is your walk with God? And if that angers you or makes you uncomfortable, instead of shunning from it or hiding from it, why not embrace it? Because God is wonderful enough to love you enough to go, how's our relationship? See, men and women struggle with this all the time. 
I deal with this in premarital counseling and all this. Often women will come to their husbands and say, can we talk about our marriage? Most men, most men will assume something's wrong. Yet a lot of women want to talk about their marriage because they just want to talk about their marriage. God will often come to us and say, can we talk about our, my relationship with you? And it's not because you're in trouble. It's because he loves you. And you don't need to run and you don't need to hide and you don't need to make excuses. So no matter what's happened in a person's life, how far away from God they've run, how empty or sinful or wicked or repulsive their lifestyle may be, there is always an open invitation unto forgiveness and a new beginning in Christ. Jesus brings peace today and hope for tomorrow. Satan doesn't care if you've got a Bible. What troubles him is if you read it. And so we can say with the church of Thyatira, dear God, heal my memories Heal my heart, heal my emotions, and heal my spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, may I practice what I have just preached. May we at Calvary and her ministries, especially for Ma One, for Kilbride, who is going to have a service this afternoon for downtown community church who's gathering with a Bible study for those up in Goose Bay and Northern Cross who are struggling and feeling so isolated and alone. For many other churches across this city, one pastor already reached out to me this morning with the burden that he felt of getting up and preaching when he was so tired and so discouraged. Lord, it is tempting to simply call it love and what we mean is compromise and we don't realize how corrupting it is. Lord, help us to discover again that the call to repentance is not some invitation to some systematized holiness where we can lord over each other, but rather the call to repentance is a call to a real relationship in life as individuals, as marriages, as families, as people, as churches, as a church, your bride. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and they have felt the sting of conviction, may they not be embarrassed, may they not be afraid, may they not hide, but may they be safe and find courage to say to somebody, can you help me? Will you pray with me? Lord, if there's an angry, bitter Christian, if there's someone who's been playing and pretending, flirting with sin, with selfishness, afraid of purity, afraid of holiness, afraid of con been burned by church, let down by other people, and they've let a seed of bitterness or anger just grow in them, and they've turned their gospel into a set of conditions with either you or your people. Lord, may this letter to the church of Thyatira warn us and invite us into relationship. And may you get all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say, amen.